So we'll go ahead and get started again. Um, let's begin kind of where we left off last time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 14, which we spoke of some two weeks ago. Um, but I didn't get to say everything I wanted to say. So uh, let's turn there. We'll read um, the portion we'll consider today and uh, go from there. Hang on just a minute. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's start in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, <clears throat> even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In verse 18, all this is from God. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you so much for your written word that has passed down through the generations. We, we uh, acknowledge that it is inerrant uh, and in all ways is beneficial to us here on earth for this life and the next. We, we thank you that we have this opportunity that we can uh, look into it and look into it uh, not just from a superficial standpoint, but uh, from the way that you're intended with every word, everything is meaningful. Uh, and we just pray that uh, today as we consider this passage that, uh, that it will be clear, that it will be truthful, uh, keep me from uh, misspeaking uh, if at all possible, and we, uh, we pray that it will edify those that are here. And we ask this in your son's name, amen. Uh, so two weeks ago, we, uh, in the preceding verses, just a brief recap, again, the whole um, <clears throat> Second Corinthian letter is a letter from Paul to the church at Corinth, um, really defending his, uh, not himself, but his, the truth of what he's saying to the church at Corinth. Again, not for anything in Paul, not for defending his reputation, but uh, so that the church in Corinth will understand what he is speaking is true, and what these false apostles are saying is not true. So he needs to, uh, and, and he's been accused by these false apostles for several things. One is certainly having ulterior motives for what he's doing and um, uh, not being truthful, that he, um, that he was not who he said he was. So, so Paul addresses this, and in the whole, the whole book of 2 Corinthians, you can kind of see his, his heart coming out and his heart for uh, not only the church at Corinth, but certainly for, for all that, that would eventually read this, um, stating this. And then he started in verse uh, 11 um, where he said, um, but but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to you. So what he's saying is, is what I am, what I'm speaking, what I'm telling you, what my motives are, who I am, God knows, and I want you to know that as well. So that's his heart pouring out to the Corinthians. Then he kind of answers their, some of the false accusations against him in verse 12 when uh, he speaks of those that... Um, that are accusing him of, of these uh, having the ulterior motives. 
Um, he, um, uh, he says this, we, um, uh, he says, give me a call, so that we may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So the false apostles were boasting more in the outward looking of a man and, and the law and things like that. And Paul says you need to look at what's in the heart of a man. Uh, and then in verse 13, he just makes it clear that, that sometimes, I guess one of the uh, accusations against him was that he seemed to be out of his mind sometimes in the way he preached. And, and um, so what he's saying, what he's spoken in verse 13 is that, you know, it may seem that way to some, but this is, but this is the truth. And so uh, I think we spoke about last time that the same message that can be proclaimed and that to, to those that have ears to hear, will hear it and it'll edify them and other people will think that that person is speaking it out of their mind, so to speak. So uh, then we come to verse 14, which we started two weeks ago, and I'm sure you remember everything we talked about then. So, so let's, uh, let's kind of go over that. And I think it's very, very important um, that we all understand what Paul is telling us here uh, because... It's just very important. I mean, as is all Scripture, but, uh, but let's go slow through it. And I'll read verse, verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's a little confusing when you kind of just read it quickly because there's a lot of dying going on. Uh, there's a lot. Then there's some living going on at the end. There's some dying, some more dying than living. So, so let's kind of, uh, again, just go slowly through it. He, he begins the verse by saying, for the love of Christ. The love of Christ controls us. That, that love that, uh, that Christ has for each and every one of his uh, children uh, He's, he's saying it controls him, it constrains him, it keeps him uh, going on the straight path. It keeps him from going too far to the left, too far to the right. Uh, and that love that uh, is written here, I think, uh, uh, in, uh, that he uh, speaks of in Romans chapter 8, verses 35, that love he speaks of in this manner. says, who shall separate us from this love of Christ? <clears throat> shall tribulation, distress, persecution... Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's a pretty all-exclusive list. That nothing can separate us from this love of Christ. And it's that love that controls Paul. And it's that love of Christ for us that... Uh, that should control us as well also. So that's the love that Paul speaks of, and that's what controls him, and that's what, that's what makes him say then, and as he continues that verse, uh, because we have concluded this. Okay, so Paul, when Paul concludes something, um, and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say this, could his conclusions be wrong? No. I mean, Paul is, Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He states this, so when he concludes something, what he is about to tell you is true. And, and um, I just want to, no, I'll read that in a minute. I'll read the Greek to you in a minute. 
but this is what he concludes then, is this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Two weeks ago, we spoke about Christ's death, um, the, the death, is, and it's really important we understand uh, Christ's death and what it means and what it did and what it means to us because the world has kind of a different view of that, but we don't. So we understand that Christ's death was not just um, um, kind of a bad outcome, that maybe God had a different plan, but it didn't work out and they killed him. We, we know that's not true. We know that he didn't just die as a martyr, uh, you know, for a good cause. Um, it, it's more than that. And he didn't die just as an example for us that we should follow. I mean, he is an example for us, but that's not all of the death of Christ. Christ's death, as we spoke two weeks ago, is a substitutionary death. He died as a substitute for you and I in place of us. Um, it, was a, it was a predetermined plan of God, okay? So it wasn't, it wasn't that, again, that, that God had something else planned for Christ being the Messiah at that particular point in time, and then it just didn't work out. No, it was predetermined that he would die as a substitute, as a sacrifice uh, for us. And in Matthew 121, he says he, he, he died for his people. So we have to understand who his people are who his people are, and those people would be all those that would believe. So Christ's death is more than uh, the world pictures it to be. It is, it, he died as a, as a sacrifice. He died as an atonement uh, to pay for our sins. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, when they did sacrifices, they would sacrifice to God for a specific something they did. So a sacrifice was a specific payment or a specific uh, thing they did for God for a specific thing. So it, was, it wasn't just a generalized thing. It was more of a specific idea. And in Christ's sake, that's exactly what he did. He, he sacrificed for us. He, uh, he ransomed us. He bought us. Those are all terms that we use for Christ's uh, death for us. Uh, he was the propitiation. We spoke of that two weeks ago. It's a great word. It appeased God's wrath for our sin, and he made atonement for us. So it's called a substitutionary atonement. That is the purpose of Christ's death. So we need to understand that. That's, that's kind of square one. And he says one has died for all. We talked about this two weeks ago. We just kind of basically got into it. Who is the all? Okay. Um, one has died for all, all will be then explained as he goes on, okay? So one has died for all, therefore all have died, okay? So, so whoever Christ died for, the all, they all died also. So what's, so what's he speaking of in, in, in dying? They don't, they don't, he's not talking about their physical death. <laughs> he's talking about their spiritual death. Um, he's not talking about, uh, now certainly, uh, certainly we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And so this could have read something like, Christ died for all because we're all dead. But that's not what it says, okay? It says, this is not, 
he's not explaining the condition we're all in, dead in our trespasses and sin. He's describing an event that happens by Christ dying for us. So he's having, so when Christ dies for all, all then die. And what do they die to? Self. The old self. They die to the, their old sins. They die to their old ways. That's exactly what he is trying to get across to us. So the all that he is dying for are those that will die uh, to themselves, to themselves. I guess that's better English. Uh, <laughs> to themselves. And then in verse 15, then will live for God. So the dying, we talk about dying to our old self. And so I ask you this question then. Do, do all people in the world die to self and live to Christ? No. So when, when he says Christ died for all and then all will die, he is speak, he's qualifying that all. It's not every single person in the whole world, but he's dying for every single person that will die to self and live to Christ. Every single person that will believe, every true believer in the world is who he died for. Um, and that's very important to understand that as well. Um, so, who dies to self, who lives to Christ, that would be all true believers. Um, and the result of that death is then in verse 15, um, that those who live, those who are physically living, okay, uh, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died in his place. Okay, so, so that's the ultimate result. That is the inevitable result of a person that Christ has died for. They will die to their old self, and they will live to Christ. And this is explained um, in verse 15, just one more thing. The word might there, that's kind of what we talked about many times. It's really not in there. That's, that, that, it doesn't mean that they might live to themselves, but it's, it, that word was just added to make it flow better. So it's the inevitable result of a person that dies to self uh, and lives to Christ. He will live to Christ. So turn with me to Romans 6, 1 through 11. Let's, it, it, Paul explains it even better in that, just so we can kind of get, um, get this down really good. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And here Paul is addressing, he just said in, in a couple verses before, <clears throat> where, um, where sin increased, grace abounds more. So, so it's kind of like, your natural mind will tell you, well, if I'm going to get more grace from God because, and I'll just sin a little more, then he'll give me more grace. And that's kind of the way it, it sounds logical to our natural depraved mind, but it's certainly not biblical and it's not what he's saying here. So in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, Paul is addressing that. He says, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, should we keep sinning so that God will give us more grace? By no means. It says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Died to sin, dying to your old self. That's the same idea that he puts forth in 2 Corinthians as well. How can we who have died to it because of Christ's atoning sacrifice causing us to die and to live to Christ. How can we do that and still, how can we still live in that sin? Verse 3, uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So all of us that have been um, certainly physically baptized, but who, 
who now identify with Christ because of Christ's death for us, essentially being baptized. We've been baptized into uh, his death. Okay, so it's a symbolic thing. Christ dies with our sin. We die to ourselves also. So we are being, uh, we are, we are identifying with Christ's death in that way. Verse 4, we were buried. Now, we weren't physically buried, but we, again, if we died, we're buried. We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, kind of saying the same thing, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's, it's important that we understand when we're, when we're baptized, we always think baptized is we're, uh, the thing we get out of it is that we're, we're, a, we're a new creation. We're rising to a new life. We're being born again, right? That's kind of what we see. But we have to understand that when you're dunked underwater there, <laughs> you're identifying with his death first. We have to understand we have to die first before we can be raised to new life with Christ. That's the idea that is put forth um, uh, by baptism. That's the symbolism that we have, that when we are that, then we are baptized, we are baptized into his death. He dies, therefore we have to die our old self, and then we'll be raised to new life. So let's keep reading here. He kind of explains it even more. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, which we have been, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So as he died and was brought to new life, we as sinners die to that sin nature and are then raised to a new life in Christ. Pretty much saying the same thing. So we know, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him. And here's the reason. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So our old self is crucified with Christ. Okay? And, uh, as, and the purpose of that was that the body of sin in us uh, would be brought to nothing. Now, we still sin, right? Every one of you here, who doesn't? Uh, well, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. Um, uh, we all still sin, so, so the, the idea here is that the sins that we have committed have been paid for. We still have that sin nature in us, um, but we are no longer controlled by that sin. We are no longer, sin has known, does not have dominion over us. We are not enslaved by sin. Our every desire is not a sinful nature or worldly, uh, a worldly desire, but it is now for uh, the one who died for us. It's now for Christ. So, um, so for the one who has died has been set free from sin, verse 7. That's the idea there. Now, if we have died with Christ, we also believe that we will live with him, almost identical to what he's saying in 2 Corinthians, okay? We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, nor does it over us. I just threw that in there. Uh, verse 10, for the death he died... He died to sin once for all. Is that all again? But the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay. So, here's the whole idea. Verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
So that's the whole idea about what, what he is, is, is saying here. To kind of to summarize what he said then back in, uh, uh, turn back to 2 Corinthians in, in uh, uh, verse 14. <clears throat> One has died for all, therefore all has died. So Christ has died, Christ's death um, was for all that would eventually die to self, okay, and then live for him. Live not a life to self anymore, but live a life to Christ. And that is uh, a couple other verses that just kind of illustrate that. And all through Paul's writing, Peter's writing, all through the, uh, the New Testament, it, it, it gets that same idea. Uh, in Colossians 3.3, 3, um, it says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you have died, okay, but now you're with Christ in God. That's your life. Your life is with Christ. In Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship. Okay, we create in Christ Jesus for good works, which are prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So our idea is now we're living for Christ. We're doing the works that he has prepared for us to do uh, from that point on. And then Peter, uh, I love this, 1 Peter 2, 24, For he himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree for the purpose of that we might, and not might like Maybe or maybe it won't happen, but that we will die to sin, exactly what it said in Corinthians, and will live to righteousness, righteousness for Christ. And by his wounds, you have been healed. And I think you can almost cross off that heal and say, by his wounds, you've been made new. I think that would be even appropriate also. So if you've been following along with me, you kind of get the idea here that, that uh, Christ's death was not exactly like you've heard through church most of your life. Um, what we're speaking of here is um, uh, something that uh, many of the evangelicals today will bristle at. They'll, they'll you know, just really even get mad. They get emotional about it because what's the prevailing uh, idea in the evangelical church today of Christ's death? Died for every person in the whole world, okay? So if he died for every person in the whole world, <clears throat> then what makes it possible for them to be saved? Something that person has to do within himself to be saved. So, so, so Christ's death made it, made it possible, but now it relies on man's free will to put that possibility into effect. So if that's the, the prevailing idea, how are you, the, your evangelism takes on the form of, uh, in any form or fashion, you need to elicit some kind of emotional response. Um, you know, you need to play the music just right. You need to make it kind of a user-friendly church so that everyone feels comfortable getting in there. And then, then you got to figure out their their need. You know, we got and you need to you need to to address those needs in there in order that they may make some type of an emotional response of their own free will for Christ. Um, and they write books about those things. You read any of those books, Jason? Yeah, okay. They read books about those things. And the idea is, is that, um, that we can persuade anyone if we can just figure out how. That's kind of the idea. Um, and that 
in their minds, makes God a more loving God because he didn't pick and choose. Um, but it relies on our free will. And um, so there's a couple of things wrong with that idea of Christ dying for all, which I think, as we read this, you know, this would even be, the verses that we're talking about today would even be like a proof verse that they would say that because it says Christ died for all uh, in verse 14, and then in verse 15, he died for all. So if you stop right there and don't read the context, they, meaning the evangelical church at large, would use that as a proof text for Christ dying for all, all people, everyone in the whole world. But the problem with that is, is a couple things. There's probably more than that, but a couple things I'll mention. And number one, that means that if Christ died on the cross as an atoning death, he bought you, he paid you, he paid the debt that you owe God with his death on the cross, then that means that in hell, there's numerous people that Christ has already paid that debt for. Okay, so everyone in hell, Christ paid that debt for. Um, everyone in the lake of fire, Christ paid that debt for. Everyone in heaven, God paid that debt for. So it's no different. His, Christ's death was no different for those that will be facing eternal punishment as those that will be in heaven. He paid their debt. Um, and on another line, if he already paid their debt and they're in hell, then they're paying their debt again. Kind of like in the law, I think, calls that double jeopardy. You can't really be punished twice for the same crime. Um, but that's an earthly thing right there as well. Um, so um, Christ did the same thing for all those who are in hell as for all those who are in heaven. That's just something that is hard to, to identify with. So what the, what the evangelical church at large today, the Arminians, I think you, most of you have heard that, that term, uh, says it all hinges on the sinner's choice, on the sinner's choice. So what Christ did was, um, what Christ did on the cross was not an actual atonement for your sins, but was a potential atonement. In other words, he died potentially for you. His death actually didn't save anybody until man's free will activates that. So he didn't actually save anybody on the cross, but it relies on man's free will to do that. The second problem with that is man's free will, man's inability. If you've been to church long enough, you understand that the Bible speaks of man's inability to... Uh, to actually make that decision. And uh, I got a, a few that we've gone through many times before. Romans 3.11, <clears throat> you know, no one, no one understands. No one seeks God. Uh, Ephesians 2.1, you're dead. And you trespass. And the idea there is you're dead. You know, dead people can't make themselves live again. Uh, Ephesians 4.18, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. Um, and I like what he said earlier in 2 Corinthians. In their case, the, in their case, meaning the unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. And we know that our hearts are deceitfully wicked as well, but the, the idea of being blinded by the God of this world, as all unbelievers were at some point in time, we were all at one point an unbeliever. 
I don't believe anybody here was born a believer. We were born in our sin nature and born an unbeliever. And as an unbeliever, Satan blinds us. So in your particular status as an unbeliever, um, are you more powerful than Satan? No. Satan is much more powerful than we are. So if Satan's blinding us, can you somehow unblind yourself? Okay. I mean, if Satan wants you to, I guess, but he doesn't want you to. Okay. So it takes something outside of you to make that decision. Uh, it takes something outside of you to, to make you see. It takes something outside of you. Uh, to, uh, if you're deaf and you can't understand the gospel, it takes someone to open your ears. Uh, it takes someone to make you understand. We're all ignorant of these things. So it's something outside of us that does that. And um, how does that do that? I put a couple verses on, in John 1. He kind of explains it as well, just understanding that it's not something that we do by our own will, but it's God. So in First John, or in, not First John, John 1, verse 12, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, again, speaking of the new birth, not of blood, meaning because they thought that their blood lineage from Abraham is what saved them. So it's not, it's not that that saved them, uh, nor of the will of the flesh, meaning the will of, of, of working, uh, you know, works righteousness kind of thing. We can't do enough to, to do that. But then he adds, nor of the will of man. So even our will, even our even, even, even our ideas, even our mind, we cannot will ourselves but of God. That's how you're born again. It's God that has to do something to you. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we've heard that many times, and you can't really say it too many times. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing not of your own. It's a gift. It's not the result of works and the purpose of no man may boast. So if we have the ability <clears throat> in our free will to come to God, we can boast, right? It was us that did it. It wasn't God. But you didn't do it. There's no reason for you to boast. There's no reason for you to be anything but humble uh, if you are a saved individual. So God has to open your eyes. God has to open your ears. God has to um, give, you under, give understanding to the ignorant. I like that because we're all ignorant until he gives us that understanding of the gospel. Um, and then he gives you, then he can move in a sinner's heart to seek him, and he can grant you repentance for those that, uh, that love their sin, which is what we all did, uh, and grant faith to those who can't believe. So all those are gifts from God. Um, I do have one quote in here that uh, kind of illustrates it. It was a devotion I read the other day, and it's, it's Spurgeon again. So we're going to read Spurgeon uh, a couple of things. Um, uh, this, was, this was something Spurgeon was uh, reminiscing about when he was 16 and just coming to Christ. This is how he kind of saw it. I hope I can read it without my glasses. It's not a lit-up screen. Um, he says, one weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. <laughs> That's a good start there. said, the thought struck me. How did you become, how did you come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. 
Okay. But how did you come to seek the Lord? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? He goes, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. But how did I come to reading, come to reading the scriptures? <laughs> he says, then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith, and the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. Uh, so, that's, that's, so I ascribe my change wholly to God. And that is exactly what the Bible teaches us about our ability to come to God. If you came to God today, it was not on your own. It was not on your free will. So that being said, I asked the question again. I asked this question, who did Christ die for? Okay. If he died for everybody, it was a potential sacrifice. It was a potential sacrifice that actually saved no one okay, until man's free will activated it. And it was a potential sacrifice that's largely unused. I mean, the majority of people in the world do not believe in Christ and are not saved. Um, or was, it, was his death um, for those who would ultimately believe, die to self, and live to righteousness, live to Christ? That's an actual atonement. He is actually dying for the people that he is atoning for. He is paying the price for those that will believe and will live to Christ. That is an actual atonement. That's a, that's a good term. It actually does what it intended purpose. Um, but, you know, if you ask most of uh, most evangelicals today will say the same thing about who did Christ die for, they'd say he died for everybody. But if they're really going to be consistent with that, that statement, uh, if he died for everybody, then then everybody's going to heaven, and there's no hell, okay? But we know there's a hell. The Bible teaches that very clearly. You know, Christ said if your hand causes you to sin, you cut it off. It's better going about with one hand than, you know, to burn in hell. Or if your eye, the same thing about your eye, you pluck it out. It's better to do that than burn in hell. And, um, so we know there's a hell. So we know that that, that can't be right. But that's what they'll say. Uh, universalism, the idea that everyone's going to heaven and there is no hell certainly is not biblical it's not it's not something that we can even consider but that's if they were consistent with if if those that are armenian or consistent with that would say that he died for everyone they have to be have to be consistent and they would have to be universalist but but no they say you know he only died for some so in their mind then their the atonement of christ is limited okay but in a different way Okay, they think that, that the atonement that Christ paid for us is limited by man's free will, which we know can't happen. But we, as those that, that trust in the word of the Bible and the doctrines of grace, know that the atonement is limited by the choice of God. And so their idea, the, the determining factor of salvation then in, in the idea of their atonement is uh, is man, and so, and so their idea is that 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 elevates man, okay, and takes away from God. In some form or fashion, they think they're protecting God, and because they say, well, if he died for all, and it's just up to man, 
You know, God's doing the best he can up there. You know, man has to make that decision. And so, you know, God's a loving God. He wouldn't do that to anybody. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but we know that's not true. And, 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 and so what that does is it just it takes God's sovereignty up here over everything and brings it down, and it takes man here and brings it up. And that's all it's kind of doing. We're going to continue to leave God up here sovereign in everything. And when it means that, that somehow he worked in us to change our will and change our minds and change our, our desires, we give him the glory. It's nothing that we did on our own. So we're not going to elevate man's free will by any mean. Um, so let's go back to our verse again. So verse 14, if, if this meant what the event, if the verse that, that Paul writes here in verse 14 means what the um, Armenian or the predominantly evangelical church today believes, when he says one has died for all, they would have to put in there, therefore some died. Okay? That's not what it says. It's the same all. The same all he died for, the same all that died, the same all that now lived for Christ. It's a specific, personal atonement that he makes and so we got to understand that it makes it it makes it even greater uh it, it how personal that really is uh, to us um let me see how much time we got okay well, let's briefly go through the let's briefly move on then to verse uh 16 so i think hope hopefully i um explain that well enough and if not you can come talk to me and i'll See if I can explain it again. Okay. But then he goes on in verse 16. He says, from now on, therefore. Okay, from now on didn't mean from, from now on means from that point forward, once he was saved, once he died to himself and lived for Christ, from that point forward, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, regard him thus no longer. So from according to the flesh, so we're regarding, we're looking at people differently now once we have been changed by Christ. We look at people there. We don't see people according to the flesh. We don't see them according to social status, you know, skin color, rich, poor, slave, free. We don't know if they're pretty or ugly. We, uh, uh, we, don't, we don't see them for what they can do for us, which is a lot of ways people look for people. I mean, a lot of ways people look at other people. Uh, so we look at them not according to anything of this mortal state, of this, of this uh, condition that we're all in, in living in, in, in the flesh. That's what he means by the flesh. And so not only do we look at them differently, not in their flesh, but we look at them differently because we're no longer in the flesh. So we look at them from a different standpoint as well. Um, so how did Christ, they say we looked at Christ as he is in the flesh. So how did Paul... How did Paul think of Christ before he was saved? How did he look at Christ? Did he think he was he was false Messiah, right? He was uh, um, he was a heretic uh, at best. He, he thought he was, he thought he was worthy of the death he he got, uh, and all those that follow him were worthy of that death. That's the way he would look at those people. But once he was saved. Then how do you look at Christ? Differently. He looked at God incarnate, okay, the true Messiah that was predicted in the Old Testament. Um, 
you know, it, it, it changes everything. He looked at him as Lord and Master. Uh, and it wasn't anything that, that he saw in Christ that, um, because Isaiah tells us he, that Christ was nothing physically to look at, right? He was, uh, um, I think I wrote down Isaiah there. Uh, he had no form of majesty we should look at, no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, so it was nothing that he would see in the flesh, but it was something that God changed in him making him understand who Christ was and what he did. So, so through the eyes of his own sinful flesh had been, had been changed. And in verse 17, he, he kind of sums up, therefore, again, if anyone is in Christ, and he, he's talking about himself, but not, not just himself and his experience, he is in Christ, but if anyone is in Christ, what happens to him? They become a new creation. They are born again is another term. And although Paul, you know, when he, he is... His conversion and his um, regeneration took place on that road to Damascus when he saw the risen Christ in a supernatural form. But his conversion to a Christian, to a believer, was supernatural. No different than our conversion to a Christian is supernatural. It's nothing that we do ourselves, but it comes out of God. It's supernatural. It's outside our body. His conversion was supernatural. And, um, uh, and then he says in, in verse 17 again, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, and again, we're not talking about uh, an unbeliever here. We're not talking about someone who has a religious, you know, doctrine or a religious um, form that they follow. If I do this, this, and this, I'm going to, you know, Christ is going to let me know. It is, it is you being regenerated by a loving God uh, and not just forgiven, not just going to hell, but you're new. You're a new creation. The old self, you died to that old self. You died to that sin nature. Now you're a new creation in Christ. And anyone who in Christ is that, they are a new creation. Um, you know, Spurgeon, again, I hate to keep going back to him, but... He, he says things very well, much better than I can. Um, he said, uh, of this new creation, he says, I know no language, and I believe there is none, that can express a greater or more thorough or radical renewal than that which is expressed in the term a new creature or a new creation. That's awesome, I think. All right, so we are regenerated by Christ. And so all true Christians, what Paul is saying here, and what the entire truth of the Bible is, have died to their self, died to their own sin way. When you're, when you're baptized into the death of Christ, you're baptized into his death because his death has caused you to die to your old self. But then you're going to live to Christ as that new creation that he made you. So the old desires go away. The new desires have come. All things have changed. And we don't do it perfectly. Uh, we understand that. Uh, but we're changed. We're made new. And we're being changed through the grace of God. So all this is from God, verse 18. Uh, all this is from God. Everything is from God um, and God alone. And so, so we're, not, and we're not passive in, in this idea, but God is what enables you. God is what places that power in you. And, though, uh, and, and when he does, you will die to your old self and you will live for Christ. Uh, so God is that power that does that. Uh, so Christ's death, just to, to, to just kind of summarize, it's personal, it's specific, it's for all those that 
will believe, they will die to old self, and they will live towards Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for your word that uh, so clearly uh, tells who you are and what you've done for us. Dear Lord, may we never forget that. May we, may we understand that to the point where it uh, changes us, that we, that we look at others not according to any worldly status or ability or uh, appearance, but that we look to others as you see them. Uh, we thank you again for this time. Uh, in your son's name, amen.